Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be with you on this Lord's Day, and I want to tell you, I think I've said this before, but it's been a joy to walk alongside and serve you in this last several months as you've been in a time of transition, and praise be to God, he's called a pastor to shepherd this flock. So you won't hear from me as much anymore, but as I've said, if you're in a pinch, um, you need a guest speaker, you know where I live, you know my number. Well, you don't know where I live. Some of you know where I live. (laughs) Anyway, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, which is where we're going to camp out this morning, you might want to turn there, we're introduced to King Jehoshaphat, and he was, as you'll see this morning, a godly and courageous king. And in chapter 20, he receives terrifying news. There are three enemy armies that are descending upon Judah to make war. And as we'll discover, Judah is completely outnumbered. They are outgunned. They are outplanned. They are outmanned. They are facing a battle that they simply cannot win with human ingenuity or strategizing or strength or resources. In fact, what becomes clear is that in and of themselves, defeat is imminent, and Jehoshaphat knows it. Some of you can relate this morning. You feel surrounded, maybe not by a physical army, probably not by a physical army, (laughs) but you feel like it. Maybe you feel surrounded by trouble or fear, doubt, maybe it's conflict, you feel outnumbered, you you feel surrounded and you feel like defeat and destruction are imminent, you feel like your enemies are closing in on you. Well, this morning's message is for you. And if you don't feel that way this morning, if you are in a time of relative peace, things are going pretty good for you right now. This message is still for you because life is full of battles. They come and they go, but we know this, they are certain. So whether you feel surrounded or not, this message is for you. What Jehoshaphat does in this chapter serves as an example for us of how to face seemingly insurmountable circumstances. God has given us a mighty weapon to fight our battles, and it's an unusual weapon. It's the weapon of worship. Again, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 with news of these armies descending, the first thing that Jehoshaphat does is he declares God's greatness. Verses 1 through 11. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. 
Someone came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon the sword, excuse me, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? So after receiving this terrifying news of descending armies, King Jehoshaphat seeks God's face, and he calls all of Judah to do the same. And I love what he says in verse 6, in this public prayer before the people of God, he talks about God's sovereignty. He said, you're God in heaven, are you not? You're the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth and the nations, and in your hand are power and might so that none can withstand you. He declares the sovereignty of God. He says, you are in charge, God. We're facing a battle, but ultimately you control the nations. Power and might belong to you. And then, again, in front of the entire assembly of Judah, he declares how in times past, God has moved in miraculous and powerful ways. So they're afraid. He's afraid. And he drops to his knees and he cries out to God in front of all the people. And he says, God, you're sovereign. You're great. And then he uses memory to recall God's faithfulness in times past. Aristotle called memory the scribe of the soul. I really like that. The scribe of the soul. When up against it, when surrounded by darkness, by doubt, by conflict, by fear, it is a good thing to do to remember how God has been faithful to you in times past. To look backwards and to remember how He delivered you. This is one of the reasons that I journal. I've been journaling since um, God rescued me in 1993. I've got just a ton of journals that I've collected over the years. I've kept all of them as far as I can remember. I've taken to journaling on a computer, which is just a little easier. 
and I've got this just vast document of, of conversations with God and entries that I've given to Him over the years. One of the reasons I think journaling is helpful, and by the way, if you don't journal, just try it. Let me just say that. There's no rules here, but I, I think it's a good practice. And one of the reasons that I find it helpful is because I have a short memory. I think you do too. <laughs> and when we find ourselves up against it, when we're surrounded or embroiled in battle, when we're in a situation where we know we can't win in and of ourselves for whatever reason, we forget how God has moved in our lives in times past and delivered us from difficult seasons. So I'll often go back and read those journals and read about God's faithfulness. And I recall that's right, God did move. I didn't know if he was going to, but he did. And looking back now, I see his faithfulness. I see his hand. He was good to me. And of course, go to the Word. When you're up against it and surrounded, go to the Word and read about in times past, over the centuries, throughout history, how God has moved like this story we're going to read right now. Remember how God has moved for the sake of his name and for the sake of his people and ask him to do it again. We, we sang that song and, and that was a serendipity, a divine serendipity. I didn't give them specifics on my message, but do it again. Look at those times where you've seen God move in the past, though you thought you weren't going to make it, and say, God, do it again. Or go to the Word and see these stories about His deliverance and power and say, God, do it again. I love the prayer of Habakkuk of the prophet. Habakkuk. 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 I love this prayer. The Babylonian captivity is about to take place, and God has revealed this to the prophet. He knows that God's people are going into a very dark season. And he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. He says, the prophet says, God, I've heard about your hand. I've heard about your deeds, your fame. Do them again in my time. That's a great prayer. God, I'm up against it. You've been faithful in times past. I, I see your faithfulness in the word. God, do it again. And the second thing that Jehoshaphat does, and it's a good pattern for us to follow in verse 12, he admits weakness. Again, after hearing about these armies who are descending, after declaring God's greatness, His power, His faithfulness in the past, he says, verse 12, the second part, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In his prayer, he confesses before the people, and this requires a great deal of humility for a king because he's supposed to be the, the protector, as it were. Yes, God, but this is his man, 
And he says before the people, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, and we don't know what to do. He says to God, we're not ready for this battle. We are weak. We are outgunned, and we are outmanned, God. This doesn't seem like a way to build confidence in the people of God, does it? He doesn't say, we can do it. We've got this. Before the people, he says to God, we're powerless. We don't know what to do. It's this childlike prayer. He also confesses ignorance. We're out planned. God, we don't know what to do. Not only are we weak, we're also not wise. We're weak and we're not wise. One of the things I love so much about God, I think you do too, is that He is attracted to weakness, not to strength. He chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Listen to these verses uh, that just reinforce this idea that God is attracted to weakness. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's a good one, isn't it? James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the lowly. Or maybe your translation says humble. He makes war with the proud. That's what that word means. You don't want to go to war with God. His arm is longer than yours. And it says here, he makes war with the proud, but he gives grace to the lowly. Isaiah 42.3, this is a good one. A bruised reed, he won't break. He will not break a bruised reed. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Do you feel like a bruised reed? Or maybe a wick that's about ready to go out. It says he won't quench it. Maybe you've heard this saying before, God helps those who help themselves. You heard that before? It's often quoted as Bible. It is not Bible. (laughs) That's not the Bible, people. The truth is, God helps those who cannot help themselves. He helps those who know they are helpless. That's the key. You've got to know it. Again, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the lowly. Matthew 5, 3, one of the Beatitudes, I'm sure you know it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He just turned everything on its head. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who know they're spiritually bankrupt. To those who say, God, I'm I'm impoverished. I'm powerless. I'm weak. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God helps those who know they are helpless. Those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. Those who know they don't have it all together. Those who know they're in desperate need of Him. Write this down. Remember it. Tuck it in 
the folds of your heart. Weakness is not a liability for God's children. It's an asset. He loves the prayer of the faithful child. Father, I don't know what to do. I'm powerless. And then the third thing in this pattern of how we should face life's seemingly insurmountable circumstances Again, is modeled for us by Jehoshaphat. Look to God for wisdom and help. Verses 12 through 17. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. He says, my eyes are on you. I'm powerless. I'm weak. I'm not wise. We don't have a chance, God. But my eyes are on you. He is looking to God to direct him in this situation. And and what a prayer. I love this prayer. My eyes are on you. I've been trying to practice that lately. My eyes are on you. The battle is obvious The opposition is so great and so terrible, but my eyes are on you. When we are in a battle that we cannot win without God, not only do we tend to forget how God has been faithful in times past, but folks, we make the mistake, and I'm guilty, of focusing on our enemies instead of focusing on God. You guilty of this? You focus on the trouble at hand, Whatever it might be, fill in the blank. You're surrounded and you focus on those invading enemy armies, as it were. And what happens is God begins to look small in our eyes. We make God small and we make our enemies look massive. But Jehoshaphat says, my eyes are on you. This creates perspective. How do we counter this tendency when our enemies look big, trouble is heavy, we're surrounded by massive foes? We do what Jehoshaphat did. We say, God, I'm powerless against this great horde that's coming against me. I don't have what it takes. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Remember in Numbers chapter 13, Moses sends the scouts into the land of Canaan, to do a survey trip, if you will. 
to survey the land. Log what you find. Tell us about the produce of the land. Tell us about the people in the land. Bring back your report. So they're on this recon trip. They're they're trying to gain intelligence about the land. That's what Moses tells them to do. They're sent out, and you know the story, right? The scouts return with a cluster of grapes so large, it has to be carried on a stick between two men, figs. And they say, the land is flowing with milk and honey, just as God said. But there's giants in the land. Think of all that God had done up to that point to get them there. The exodus. Daily provision. Manna. God's faithfulness. And yet here they are at the edge of the promised land. And they say, it's the land you said it was, God. But those guys are bigger than us. In fact, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. Except for Caleb. <laughs> I love Caleb. In his latter years as an old man, he still has this fighting spirit that knows how big God is. But at this point, he says, I'm paraphrasing, right, okay? What are you talking about? Let's take the land. He has perspective. He knows God is big. His eyes are on God, not on the giants. We need to focus not on the giants, not on the invading armies, not on the problems, but on God. One of the ways you can do this that's been helpful for me over the years, I try and do it pretty regularly. It's one of the reasons I like to take walks. Uh, We live in a land of big sky, don't we? Montana is called the big sky country. We're pretty big sky too. Just look up. You need perspective. Look up. Spend some time looking at the clouds. Think about the maker of the heavens, especially at nighttime. Daytime's great too, but nighttime is especially great, especially if you're out of town and you're in a rural area and there's not a lot of light pollution. Look up if you need perspective. Count stars. Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26, God says this, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. In other words, how are you going to describe me? I'm incomparable. Who are you going to compare me to? And then he doesn't give an answer. He just gives instructions. He says, lift your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? He who calls out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That's a great passage to memorize. What it says is this. God is saying this to us. Do you want to know who I am, what I am like? will look up on a star-filled night and start counting. 
I made each one of them, billions upon billions upon billions of them, and I know them by name. I shepherd them like sheep because of my great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Our eyes are on you. When you are facing a battle you can't win, you need perspective. Don't focus on your enemies or your problems or your circumstances. Focus on the maker of the skies, the maker of the mountains, the maker of the stars. And then your enemies will look like grasshoppers. And then, of course, James 1.5, such a great verse. If any of you lacks wisdom... Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And that's a promise. In fact, he says, when you ask, believe you received, lest you be like a vessel tossed to and fro on the waves. When you ask God for wisdom in His name, He's going to give it to you. God, I'm weak, I'm not wise, but you're strong. Grant me wisdom for the battle. And then the last step in this pattern, which again, Jehoshaphat gives to us that I think is a great pattern for facing life's troubles. Wield the weapon of worship. This is the best part of the message in the story. I love this. Verses 18 through 23. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for His steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Jehoshaphat wields the weapon of worship here. This is amazing to me. He responds by worshiping God and calling all of you to do the same. Circumstances are hopeless, but Jehoshaphat hopes in God. Think of how counterintuitive this is, people. War is at their doorstep. 
It's a war they cannot win without an intervention from Yahweh. And they worship. They start singing. This doesn't seem very strategic to me. But Jehoshaphat believed God. He trusted what the Spirit of God had spoken through the prophet Jehaziel that the battle was the Lord. And so he aims to conquer Moab with music. He appoints frontline troops. And notice they are not charioteers or swordsmen, they're singers. He puts the worship team at the battlefront. The Kohathites, you need to understand who they are. This was not just a random group of singers that Jehoshaphat called to the battlefront. They are descendants of the Levites. I don't know if you know about the Levites, but they were the worship leaders appointed by God ever since the time of David to perform the ministry of song in Israel. Worship leaders. He puts the worship team right on the front lines. You know, when when we worship corporately, it's not just, you know, let's have some nice music before we hear God's word. It's, It's warfare. It's getting our hearts attuned with who God is. It's it's this act of saying, our eyes are on you. You're great. You're good. You're faithful. You're fierce in battle. That's what worship is about. This is a, a battle team up here. Listen to their song. I, I just love this song. And again, it just it's just so counterhuman and so counterintuitive. So they're going before the enemy armies, and they say, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. What a battle hymn that is, huh? Give thanks to the Lord, His steadfast love endures forever. The battle hasn't even been fought, and Jehoshaphat leads his people into a pre victory celebration and the choir is at the front. You might say that they ambushed their enemies with song. And when they arrive at the appointed lookout spot, God does exactly what He said He would do. He takes care of it. He told Jehaziel, the battle's mine. Stand and watch. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord routes the enemy armies until no soldier is left alive. I don't know how he does it. He's done it before. Before this, he does it again here in this battle. But they're thrown into confusion by this worship, and they start attacking one another instead of attacking the people they intended to destroy. So their plans to destroy Judah are backfiring in their face. God reveals His arm. I think when we worship, when we're surrounded and we're in a dark place, that the enemy's plans to derail us backfire in His face. And He's shamed 
Because even in the midst of the trouble, we're, we're giving God the glory that is due Him. So even though the victory belongs to God, as we know, Jehaziel said it was going to be God's victory, I want you to notice something, and this is really important. The human means through which God gives victory is the ministry of the music. The victory belonged to God, but the human means through which He gave or granted the victory was music. You see, worship is not just a response to grace. It is not just a response to who God is and what He's done. It is that. That is worship. But it is more than that. It is also a means of grace. Worship is power. Worship is a weapon. The enemies of God are thrown into confusion by the songs of God's people. I believe that God has appointed worship as an effective weapon against Satan and his schemes in our lives. We see an amazing example of this in Acts 16. Turn there. We're going to look at a New Testament example of this concept, and I think it further proves out that worship is a weapon Chapter 16, verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, Paul and Silas, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You should read the rest of it when you have time. This is an amazing example of worship being a weapon. Why were they in prison? Because they were faithful to God, faithful to the gospel. They were proclaiming the gospel. And then 
a slave girl who had a spirit that somehow allowed her to see the future, was doing fortune telling, and there was some people profiting off of this slave girl, and Paul's had enough of her chatter, and so he casts out the demon, and the, the liberators here, Jesus has come, he's sending people free, and this is their response. Because their means of gain had been taken, and so those in authority, those in leadership, beat them with rods, probably hit their heads, their back, probably their legs. They were bloody, no doubt, maybe broken bones. Their clothes are torn off, and they're thrown into a dark cell. And this jail was not like our county jail, folks. I'm not saying jails are great. They're not great places, but this was total darkness Surrounded by those who wanted to harm them, and what did they do? They worship. It's counterintuitive, it's counterhuman, but they worship. Why did they sing? Here's why they sang, I believe. They wanted to see God display His greatness and power. They knew this was warfare. And so they sang to God, and He moved, and the kingdom of darkness was rolled back. The jailer said, how do I get saved? Tell me. God was revealing his arm of salvation. The prison was shaken. Worship is a weapon. Amy Carmichael, who was a pioneer missionary to India, for 55 years she served in India without a furlough. Furloughs were hard when she served. It wasn't convenient to get on a jet because they didn't exist. She died in 1955. But she served 55 years from 1900 to 1955. Listen to what she said. I believe truly that Satan cannot endure it and so slips out of the room when there is a true song. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said, music is a fair and lovely gift of God which has often wakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. Music drives away the devil. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. I would not change what little I know of music for something great. Experience proves that next to the Word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devil, music is distasteful and insufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. Perhaps you've heard of the story of Jim Elliot. On January 8th of 1956, Jim Elliot and four other young missionaries approached the jungle edge where the Alcas lived, a, a tribe that they were reaching with the gospel. And their last recorded act the last recorded act of these courageous missionaries, according to Elizabeth Elliot, was to sing a hymn together. Here's what they sang. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know, yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee and in thy name we go. 
All five of them were killed that afternoon. This may not sound like triumph to you. They were murdered by the very tribe they were trying to reach with the gospel. This doesn't sound like God routing enemies, does it? Doesn't sound like God's arm of deliverance, but make no mistake, folks, this was triumph. God delivered them from something far worse than death. They were protected from cowardice and unbelief and fear. They were protected from going to live out their lives in suburbia when God had a call on their lives to to be missionaries. And we know this, Satan's plan to stop the gospel's advance among the Alcas backfired in his face. This became the inflection point for the gospel starting to spread among the Alcas. And not only that, but the story of this, these courageous missionaries who loved God more than their lives would be broadcast all around the world, stirring up a brand new movement of missionaries. In fact, their story is still inspiring people today. So, this was triumph. Ultimately, it was triumph. And worship was their weapon. Victory came through song. When we're surrounded and we worship, God is seen to be great and precious, and He turns our enemies' designs to destroy us into schemes of His love in our lives. He uses these things to define us and bless us, and they become the occasion for Him to reveal His arm, whether we live or die. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, his second epistle, chapter 10, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Folks, worship is a weapon. It destroys strongholds. So here's what I want you to do. Here's how I encourage you to make practical sense of this message. Pick a song or two. Have it at your ready for those night hours, for those times of temptation or challenge. Have it ready. Memorize it and sing it. And God doesn't care about your voice. He just loves to hear his children sing. Use it to ambush Satan when he attacks, just like you would memorize Scripture, memorize a song or two, or better yet, memorize a song or two that's full of Scripture. Satan gets a double whammy. So that when you're surrounded, you pull out that weapon. When it looks like you can't survive, like defeat is imminent, you sing. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how you have moved in our lives in times past. And sometimes when we're surrounded by fear and doubt, we forget that. And so even this morning, God, um, we recall 
how you have been so faithful to us always. And we thank you for these stories in your word that remind us of how you have moved throughout history for the sake of your name and the sake of your people. God, I pray that in our arsenal against our enemy, we would not neglect this weapon of worship. I pray that we would ambush Satan with our songs and that you would reveal your arm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. Have a great week.